Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, I'm Joel Morris. This is Comfort Blanket. Uh, it's a place where I talk to people who make cool stuff that I like about the warm stuff that they like. I'm going to take them and talk to them about uh, a book or a film or a TV show or a record that just makes them feel good, safe, looked after, warm. This time I'm talking to the broadcaster and documentary maker Tim Dunn. Tim is a railway historian and a huge enthusiast and a fan of the built environment. And he makes television documentaries like The Architecture of the Railways Built and Secrets of the London Underground. Uh, Tim is one of those force for good enthusiasts. And if there's anything I'll tell you about trains, he's usually there. He has chosen as his comfort blanket John Betjeman's 1970s documentary, Metroland. Is this Buckingham Palace? Are we at the Ritz? No. This is the Chiltern Court restaurant built above Baker Street Station. The gateway between Metroland out there and London down there. The creation of the Metropolitan Railway. So you have chosen... John Betjeman's Metroland. I have. It, oh, I, how could I not choose this, Joel? Is this the essence of, of you or the essence <laughs> of your sense of comfort? Is this your safe place? It is truly, I think, the place I return to which defines my childhood. So, yeah. Oh, right. So, how old were you when you saw Metroland? I think I must have been six or seven years old. Like, I can't place it exactly. I know where I was and I know the VHS because, <laughs> and it was labelled Metro-Land appropriately. Not, exactly. Not, That's as how it, it has to be done. Be. Like Spider-Man, Winnie-The-Poo. <laughs> I, I sat in a house on the edge of Metroland in Beaconsfield, where, where my grandparents lived. And I was told about this film that uh, this Saturday evening I was there. Because every Saturday evening, my parents go off to dinner parties in Metroland somewhere, as, of course, all good Metrolanders did in the 1980s. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> and, and so I used to get posted off to my grandparents in Beaconsfield. And I remember sitting there, and, and I'd gone through various different uh, VHSs they'd recorded. And I was given this one, I was told Metroland. And I, I remember thinking, what is this? And I was told by my granny that uh, there was this, this, this poet 
and, and, and he written a poem about this place that, that, that I grew up in. And I'm thinking, wow. oh, I don't know, poetry, you know, about six o'clock in the evening. I finished watching Roland Rat on television, probably surreptitiously, because I wasn't supposed to watch Roland Rat because that was ITV, of course. So I mustn't yeah. watch that. Are but, you all right confessing that now? Is there a statute of limitations on Roland Rat? <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to say it now. It's all about Kevin the Gerbil, yeah. you know. Um, I, I just remember being told, probably, actually probably was told, watch this rather than, than, than uh, Roland Rat. And I've given this VHS, which eventually has become worn out I think actually I don't possess that VHS anymore it's long gone in the bin um, of my parents but I have the, the official Metroland VHS these days but I remember being very small and watching it just agog because suddenly it started to make everything make every, well, all the sense because suddenly the place that I understood or thought I understood or places I recognised were on telly The healthier of Harrow in the 1920s and 30s when these villas were built you paid a deposit and eventually, we hope, you had your own house with its garage and front garden and back garden. A verge in front of your house and grass and tree for the dog. Variety created in each facade of the houses and in the colouring of the trees. In fact, the country had come to the suburbs. Roses are blooming in Metroland just as they do in the brochure. Right. This is a thing of making sense of your environment Huge. in a way that I think people don't tend to question until they're much older. Yeah. You tend to, where you, where you grow up, you just go, well, this is, everyone grew up there. Yes. There's nothing unusual about it. There's nothing special about it. I certainly yes. felt that growing up. I, I was sort of a bit, especially if you live somewhere a bit nowhere. Tracy Thorne talks about it in her books a lot. Says, and she's on the, the St. Albans line, I think. She said, if you, if you lived in commuter belt, you always felt you grew up kind of nowhere. And if someone makes a television programme about where you grew up, you go, oh, were special. Well, no, this is the thing. Oh, no, it wasn't that you were special. Well, well no, but again, I thought everyone must have television programmes made about where they live. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think this was one of a series and they happened to have the well, one that was about, about you? Well, I, I, I didn't really question it. And so I, I know that was the first time I watched it when I, I was probably seven or eight. I, I, I've been told that. But it's probably when I, I then got probably towards the, probably about 10 or 11 then, I really understood it. Because right. it was then played again and again and again in the background, and there was a, the reason I know I got to it again after this is because this is so nerdy. But I mean, you know me well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a huge nerd, of course I am. Um, there was a television series. It was called The Train Now Departing. Twenty years after the end of Steam. Right. Now I know that must have obviously been a certain point in the nineteen eighties, and of course the, I, I knew we had the DVDs. Or, sorry, sorry, the VHS rather. And I'd watched these so many times, I then returned back to this VHS that I remembered from a few years before about trains and Metroland. And I remember picking this up again with Metroland on the side. I remember looking at it and going, I remember this. This is that chap that I watched when I was a kid a long time ago. No, yeah. I was 11 years old. I was a kid, seven years old. You know, and four years later, picking it up and going, what is this? What I remember this thing. There was a thing in it about where we live. This is strange. <laughs> And picked it up, and I watched it, and it all came at age 11. I was, being, I was reminiscing at the age of 11. Yeah. And realised that it genuinely told the story of the places that I, I, I lived. The place I was about to go off to school in, because I, was, I lived in, in Gerrard's Cross and Chelfham St. Peter as a kid. And I was about to go off to school, grammar school in Amersham, which of course is, is, is where part of the, the story is set. And the Metropolitan Line, which runs through Amersham. And suddenly, I, having grown up with my auntie and uncles living in Ricelip and Ickenham, and my grandparents from Ickenham, and going to the model shop in Harrow on the Hill, and my parents being from Ickenham and Ricelip, and having gone up to London on the Metropolitan Line and Baker Street Station, suddenly this whole thing is becoming 
like it's, it's all joining my life together. And the end of this film, uh, Betjeman ends up in the far northern reaches of Buckinghamshire, up up in a place called uh, Verney Junction. Well, actually. I, I had my seventh, eighth, and ninth birthday party at Quainton Road Railway Station, where, where he stands. stands where end. he stands at the end, and my godmother, um, bizarrely, uh, actually had a, a battery hen farm alongside the train tracks <laughs> at Verney Junction. But he doesn't show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't really talk about it now. He pans away from um, it. <laughs> yeah. Where are the advertisements? Where's the shopping arcade, the coal merchants, and the parked cars? This is a part of the Metropolitan Railway that's been entirely forgotten. Beyond Aylesbury it lies, in flat fields with huge elms and distant blue hills. Quainton Road Station. It was to have been the Clapham Junction of the rural part of the Metropolitan. Metroland, I realised, that age, joins my entire life together. From my aunts and uncles, my family, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and my future life it is, is joined together, uh, bizarrely, by this one programme. And that's why I still love it. Look at these fields. They were photographed in 1910 from the train. Why not, said a clever member of the board, why not buy these orchards and farms as we go along, turn out the cattle and fill the meadowland with houses? It's a very unusual programme. It feels like it's finding or perfecting maybe a language of television. Yeah. It's very hard to explain to someone who, who hasn't seen it. If it's a poet, the poet laureate, he's a year or two in being, into being poet laureate, yeah. Sir John Betjeman, yeah. and he decides to ride the Metropolitan Line out of Baker Street up to the far reaches of the Metropolitan Line and do... Little vignettes of everyday life along there. Nothing particularly exciting happens, nothing spectacular happens, and yet it ends up being this sort of hymn to sort of ordinary (laughs) English... Not even eccentricity. He doesn't even go looking out for eccentrics. It's not like the theme is to find the weirdest (laughs) people along the way. He just lets it happen. It's very, very relaxed. Yeah. And his tone... You can never quite tell when he's doing poetry and when he's just narrating. And eventually they sort of blur into the same thing. So it's got this sort of hypnotic rhythm to it. Absolutely. Like a train journey. There's a rhythm to his speaking that lulls you. The first time I saw this, I was older than you, but I remember thinking, this is wonderful. I'm losing myself in this in a way that you'd expect a travelogue to need to be the Orient Express or across the Trans-Siberian Railway, somewhere spectacular. But he finds something poetic and moving and affecting and that makes you think and feel on quite a boring train journey. <laughs> In every, obviously, no train journey is boring, but it's, well, well, it's very I, ordinary, or rather ordinary rather than boring. It's uh, every day. Yeah, it, the word boring is difficult. I mean, I mean, look at boring postcards as curated yeah. uh, by... Um, Oh, what's his name? Martin Parr. Martin Parr, of course. There's a bit of Martin Parr in this. There's a bit of that fly on the wall. There's a bit of that letting people... There's tiny hints of where we're going to go with this. There are little bits, which, putting it in context now, you can see it's a sort of distant cousin of the London Nobody Knows with James Mason. Yes. That was the romantic age of railways, the age of steam. And... To my way of thinking, they finally put an end to that with the ritual tearing down of Euston Station a couple of years back. But you can still pick up some of the old atmosphere in some of the London termini. For instance, Broad Street, there's a working model of a Victorian railway engine which can be activated by a penny in the slot. 
where it's a series of vignettes and at the end of it you feel like you've been on a journey but i think betjeman himself said he wanted it to be like a music hall thing with variety acts coming on and you never knew who what was coming on next so oh, yeah. he'll do a bit of architecture bit of railway history bit of social history there's a bird watcher who talks straight down <laughs> the lens <laughs> yeah looking like something from monty python the second most interesting part of my nature trail at neeston are the allotments in brook road and there's such a good view from the top here that i can pick birds up at a great distance altogether i've seen 92 different species of bird within half a mile of my home here and that's not a bad total sometimes people speak Sometimes he reads a poem over them. Sometimes you can hear them. Sometimes you can't. Oh, and they, they get Willie Rushton singing Neesden in yeah. the background to the private eye <laughs> record. <And yeah. laughs> Neesden, you won't be sorry that you breezed in. The traffic lights and yellow lines, the illuminated signs all say welcome to the borough that everybody's pleased in. Neesden. It's a collage. It's a scrapbook of the journey and... Oddly, not knowing what's coming next becomes the appeal, and all it's held together with is this sort of sonorous, Paddington-ish voice that's sort of over the top of it. And you go, I don't know how it works, but it's hypnotic, and it's lovely. Over the points by electrical traction, out of the chimney pots into the openness, till we come to the suburb that's thought to be commonplace, home of the gnome and the average citizen, sketchly and unigate, Dolcis and Walpamua. The one thing we haven't mentioned here, of course, is, is that Betjeman obviously provides the, the words for it, but the structure of it come from Eddie Mertzoff, who is still with us. Um, oh, he's the director. He's the director. And he puts it together. It was cooked up by the pair of them over a very boozy lunch with oysters, apparently. Once. <laughs> um, and it's got that lovely... Uh, that, that, <laughs> you it, can it, tell, it, can't you? But that era of television where, where only a certain sort of person was allowed to make television, like middle-class, middle-aged yes. white men, yes. but they'd get together and go, why do we go on the Metropolitan Line? <laughs> More wine, and then the programme comes out. Um, that lovely sort of Attenborough era where just as long as it was a jolly good idea and it would entertain them, they hoped that it would entertain the people. And there's a wonderful thing David Attenborough said once when he was accused, he said, uh, what about the accusation that back in the day when you were running BBC Two and things, you only made programmes for yourself? And he went, of course we did. <laughs> Otherwise you become very cynical. And I think this is a perfect example of a programme made for the pleasure of the people who make it yeah. that ends up entertaining everybody else because it has not a note of cynicism in it. I'd, I'd, I would love to meet Eddie one day because he... he and I, I know he's still a member of the, of the Betjeman Society, I think. Betjeman's uh, daughter, uh, sadly, has now passed on, but, but the society carries on. And I know he's an honorary member, I think, of the society and i'd love to read his notes that were made at the time he must have made notes because clearly this is a labor of love now, now, now of course betjeman has obviously been on travelogues before you've seen john betjeman goes by train yeah. where he goes off to king's lynn i think it's hunstanton no no hunston isn't it so hunston it's one of the things that we love about oh, obviously <laughs> if you're a betjeman fan is there's not a single word he can't say shorter <laughs> There's the green at Hunston, just outside the station. A nice outline, except for that concrete lamp standard. I think there's a, isn't there a bit of Hertfordshire or something like that? Hertfordshire. You can always drop a letter. Yes, yeah, yes, he goes up to Hunston and Hunston, sorry. Yes, and uh, of course, Hemp- Hempstead. I've always, from being a child, I, I, I actually I hugely enjoyed Betjeman's poetry because it is so... It's so Betjeman. Um, yeah. In fact, my dear partner, he has done a spoof Betjeman poem. And the rhythm is so unmistakably Betjeman. You, you can't but speak in his accent when you're doing this. Yes, he's very... He's a parodiable person. And because of that, he's full of character. And he knew that. Of course, I mean, yeah, he knew who to be parodiable. 
Yeah, he's doing this a little bit like, weirdly, sort of Hitchcockian. Like, he's this big figure who you're watching him be himself. And this is completely his key. Oh, yeah. And and by this point, he's done done the travelogues and he's done the stuff. He's done his ode to rail travel already. So, obviously, Eddie knows what he's up to and and, and gets on board because of this. But also, there's a a whole series behind this. I'm sure people listening to this will know. He did several poems about Middlesex, for example, where uh, and, and early electric, and, and where he sings about how or the lights are lighted after tea, and Harrow on the Hill. Then Harrow on the Hill's a rocky island, and Harrow churchyard full of sailors' graves, and the constant click and kissing of the trolley buses hissing is the level to the wheelstone turned to waves, and the rumble of the railway is the thunder of the rollers as they gather up for plunging into caves. Just these wonderful um, little little vignettes, I suppose, about about pre Second World War suburbia, actually. And then he actually moves then into actually uh, post war suburbia, and, and and actually the city as well. He talks about the snow falls in the buffet of Aldersgate Station, which actually became Barbican Station later on. We talks about how Barbican Station was hit uh, by by a bomb, and so the snow is falling into the ruins of this station, of the Metropolitan Line, as it as it was. And it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. But you see this coming through. He has this love of the Met, but he talks about the Met throughout. Um, Oh, I'm going oh, to tearful because because he, he he loves this idea of connectivity and this yeah. and of course it went past places he knew and he'd been to as a child and one of the places he he mentions he says he went to the the great exhibition well, not not great, not great exhibition the Wembley exhibition the Empire exhibition <laughs> he wasn't quite that old. <laughs> yeah, 1851 <laughs> I was 17 years old um, he was 17 years old when he went in 1924 to the Wembley exhibition and he visits the site of it and, and looks at buildings that are now actually been demolished have been delisted actually I think it's the, the last building on that site which is the British Empire exhibition from 1924 was demolished in 2013 yeah I'm, still I'm, I'm still furious still stuff there but he, he ends up there's a beautiful moment where he pulls out to reveal he's on the centre circle of Wembley Wembley Stadium, <laughs> but that's the site of it. And you go, oh, there's still there's still a bit of that exhibition and that kind of architecture there in the form of Wembley Stadium when he does it. And he, it's, he's celebrating that and saying this is this is somewhere where celebration always happened. And it's it's a beautiful yeah. shot where you remember, where is he? Where is he going to be? Where is he going to be? Here, on this Middlesex turf, and since then, the site has become quite well known. He's playing that character up all the way through. The shot everyone remembers from it is him playing golf or golf, golf as he calls <laughs> it, playing golf in Rickmansworth, where he addresses the ball, swipes, misses, yes. and just collapses yes. in laughter. And it's just a low thing. You go, oh, I've been kind of waiting for you. You're my sort of avuncular guide. It's quite a bold thing to do to sort of leave in almost a, an outtake within the thing, but it's it's not an outtake. They've left it in because it's part of you watching this character who's playing himself. One of the joys of Metroland was the nearness of Gough to London, and Moor Park, Rickmansworth, was a great attraction. Now, eye on the ball, left knee slightly bent, slow back. (laughs) Well, that wasn't up to much. Perhaps the clubhouse is more exciting. Apparently he was in a horrible mood that day. There was a delay on the Met line. He arrived really late, really? in a foul mood. And that's the director saying that was the moment he cheered up. He breaks. So we're leaving that in. So the sun breaks in his face. 
and that's important to the story as well. Listen, you're watching this man go on a little journey, but you want to watch him as a character as well. But think about what's come out. Think about because he, he did Banana Blush as well, of course, which, which of course is his famous record, which he does, and and it's this, this marvelous scenario where Betjeman is just giggling to himself and and joking along as himself, <laughs> realizing he's parody himself, but he doesn't really care. From the geezer ventilators, autumn winds are blowing down on a thousand business women having baths in Camden Town. He's realised it's all about having fun and, and the joy you can see in his face. And, and there's examples where towards the end of his life, this, this is filmed in, what, 1973? It was shown in 73 and it was filmed over the summer of 72. And so he, he, he's not too far you know, towards the end of his life. And of course, the end of his life, he, he's asked, you know, Sir John, what, what, any things you regret in life? He says, I didn't have more sex. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the mark of a man who doesn't really care anymore. No, so he, he trundles along and, 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 he's, and, you, and you see that, that there's a photo shoot, actually, you, you can see. If, if you Google Betjeman Metroland, you'll see some shots of him taken on this... Uh, steam train, which I think is probably filmed at the Bluebell Railway in Sussex, where they've preserved some of these old Metropolitan Railway carriages. Yeah. He's there getting on, he's looking out of one of the carriages, one of these, these old uh, Chesham set stock, I think it's called, and he's looking in absolutely foul mood. <laughs> You know, he's having a horrible time. He's, he's thoroughly sick of the whole process, frankly. Um, but but you but in this program, I think it's when he gets to Soak Park. I think the whole thing changes. Actually, he's at he's at Moor Park Golf Club. In fact, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you underneath a map of the Metropolitan Line. Can we point out we're at my house, not your house? Because <laughs> obviously, I assume your house has maps of the Metropolitan Line everywhere, but we are literally standing yeah, sitting but, under but, a Metro Metroland original map. I can also point out the Metropolitan map is also underneath a metro... And I know this because I know you and I know me. You, the, you are sitting underneath a luggage rack from an A-class 1960s Metropolitan Line train, which was rescued. You bought that from the London Transport Museum Friends or the sale that they had. Yes. You bought that for about 25 quid, didn't you, I think? Yeah, I a, a salvage thing that my wife found. Oh, yeah, like and there's, there's a, there, there's a full uh, vintage old Metropolitan Line map, so you can check these these stops. It's The closest we've got to notes for this is the Metropolitan <laughs> Line map that's framed on the wall. Well, let's talk about it then, because that's because my journey with, with Betjeman, as did many people, start with him at that moment, where he's standing there, or he sits there at Baker Street in the Chilton Court restaurant. Beautiful shot of him yeah. in that restaurant. And and, and, and he sits there and he, he talks about how the, the women would, you know, that their husbands would go off and, and go uh, do their job and the women would go off to Liberties uh, and Whiteley's, I think he talks about, and they come to their shopping and then they have their, their, their afternoon tea to wait for their husbands, uh, of course, as they would. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> in, in the Chilton Court restaurant. It's now Weatherspoons today, but when he was there, it was still Chilton Court restaurant. Um, actually, it's quite a good Weatherspoons, actually. They do look after the buildings, they do regardless of the rest of it. Regardless of his politics, he <laughs> does look after the buildings. And you can still feel the whole building slightly shake uh, really? as, 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 as a train goes through it, which I quite like. Um, <laughs> you can get to Marlborough Road. I remember Marlborough Road station because it was the nearest station to the house where lived my future parents-in-law. He, he comes out through an Angus Steakhouse. That's time. One. Yeah, it's an Angus Steakhouse with a, a beautiful, I think it's microgram or Euro-style extended font on the top yes. of it in red. And one of the things that's probably worth saying about Metroland is that it's built over... Uh, he's got 1910 footage of the journey yes. before Metroland's built. Yes. So they, they, they drop this black and white Edwardian footage and show you what was there, the fields of the farms beforehand. And then he's dropped in, it's Betjeman goes on the journey. And if you watch it now... 
there's another layer of nostalgia on top of that where you're getting to see 1973 Britain. Yeah. So what we get from it is an extra layer of nostalgia. But I think what I find fascinating about it is it feels like it's part of that very aching late 60s, early 70s nostalgia of the Edwardian era that is Sergeant Pepper. Yes. That is the sting. Yes. And it's, but it's this thing of going, I'm going to celebrate something Edwardian, high Edwardian, which is within his memory. So it's got the 1920s exhibitions and the 1910 footage and things like that. And then layered on top of that is another layer of distancing which we can have, which you can look at what that bit of London looked like 50 years ago. And that's what I find fascinating about it, because he provided this link with the newsreels as a child I'd just started to become aware of. You know, because if you're sort of 10, 11 years old, or certainly in my household, you know, you're, you're being shown old newsreels of things or a popular television and so on, and suddenly here's a man on television about your grandfather's age who is talking about places that I had grown up and lived and family grown up on television and he's showing he's talking about his memory of this, this exhibition and he's saying oh you know I, I i went there i was 17 years old i remember this exhibition and i i remember seeing this big tower and the people on these on these weird trains i'm like my god this man actually was there yeah and as a historian now i look back and i go my god what a record what a record he was that was the palace of arts where i used to wait while my father saw the living models in Pear's Palace of Beauty. Is this a thing that would have maybe lit in you the idea of history? Yes. Or, or that history wasn't just kings and queens, history was social history, was local history, was to do with where you grew up, and that you are part of a moving history, you will eventually be... 100%. Like Benjamin is. Someone will yeah. say to you, Grandad, <laughs> what was it like <laughs> when the Spice Girls came out? But that feeling that we will all drop into history at some point, and you won't have to have commanded an army for it. I, I remember going on the on the school bus every morning, and we go up uh, through Old Amersham, up the hill to Amersham on the hill, and to school, the, the grammar school, and we go past the sun houses, which are these these little houses that march up the hill to High Andover, which Benjamin goes to uh, in, in Amersham. That's the modernist house, the yeah. beautiful modernist house. Just, uh, built for... Um, uh, built for Amias Connell. Oh, the British Museum chap. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and he goes in there. But I remember going up the hill on, on, on this bus and looking at, across these things and thinking, I know those. <laughs> that programme, they're interesting. They're really weird. But they're, and, and, and I remember telling people at school, and then, you know those, that, those, those houses we go past? They're really interesting. Do you know about this? And the, and the kids kind of look at me going like, what? <laughs> but later on, repeating it and then going, that is really interesting when you appreciate it when you're like 16, 17 and going like, that is really interesting. It's a transformative thing. I think what it is, when someone's saying that you can, you can change a child's life by saying, have you looked up? Yes. Look up at the above the, the, the street level of buildings and see the buildings above it. You can change the perspective of a child by sort of saying, what looks like a boring thing is an interesting thing. There is history there. It's not just all at street level. Look up, look look behind things, see what things where things are. And this is a programme, I think, that says for a mundane area, especially for mm. you, you grew mm. up there, mm. it's not even remotely exotic, but to say yeah. there's a history to this. And if you say to someone, you need to meet this halfway, this won't jump out and tell you it's history. <laughs> you might have to sort of walk up to yes. it and look. Yes. And that's what it's saying. It, it's a process of giving you clues for things you... Further reading may include you <laughs> looking this up. Amidst all this frivolity, in one place, a sinister note is struck. In that helmeted house, where, rumour has it, the Reverend John Hugh Smith Piggott lived, an Anglican clergyman whose Clapton congregation declared him to be Christ, a compliment he accepted. 
uh, one of the first things you see in it is this astonishing house in St. John's Wood yeah. that looks like a beetle, like an evil beetle. It's the yeah. most gothic... With that porch on the front. With a porch that yes. looks like, looks like a, yes. ho- a hood of a beetle thing. And it's dark and neo-gothic. And, and even Betjeman says it looks like it's looking over your shoulder. It's like there's something, uh, something restless and unpleasant. A real haunted house. Really gothic place. So I thought, this is brilliant. So I looked it up, found out about it. It was, he mentions it's owned by the Agapemonites, which is a brilliant <laughs> word. So I immediately, when the thing was finished, looked up the Agapemonites. Who were they? I spent one day <laughs> this week obsessed by the Agapemonites. So off the back of this. And what Betjeman said, he said, there's an interesting thing in St. John's Wood. I found out I live near the marshes, on the other side of the marshes, just up in Stamford Hill, just nice. Stamford Hill bus garage is a church built by the Agapemonites. No! Who were a high Victorian sect who practised weird sex rituals. It was mainly young, unmarried, wealthy women. Oh, his wifelets he mentions, doesn't he, in the yeah, and he has all these wifelets. Yeah. And, and they used to do weird, sexy, cult, sort of high Victorian sex We've all done it, Joel. We've all done uh, it. And take all the money from these women, and he took all the money from these wealthy, unmarried women, and spent it on this spectacular, insane, church over the way which you can see from Walthamstow Marshes which I've walked past a hundred times I went in this week it's full of this astonishing Walter Crane the children's illustrator uh, stained glass windows of uh, showing the the, the status and liberation of women it's a very very weird gothic similarly gothic thing so I spent I cycled over there had a lovely morning there visiting that and that came off seeing this this little house on the Metroland video where he says belong to the Agapemonites and the eccentric (laughs) Hugh Smith Piggott and I went who's that went into a little dig and suddenly had a lovely day of doing local history in my area based on that. But for some reason, this house has an uncanny atmosphere, threatening and restless. Someone seems to be looking over your shoulder. Who is it? Um, do you know who lives in the, the Agapemonite house now? Oh, no, go on. Vanessa Feltz. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Miss Filtz, if you ever hear this, I am so, so happy that you possess that house and I hope you look after it. I'm sure you do and you appreciate how, how bonkers it is. It's delightful. What he's unlocked, and I think this is a very interesting thing about this as a documentary form, is it's full of little nuggets. He says yeah. something as if, you know Hyanova, you know the Agapemonites, and he moves on. And if you want to, the well, next dances, day, yeah. 
you can look them up and have a lot, as I had, a lovely daily bike going to visit a bonkers church. In 1931, all Buckinghamshire was scandalised by the appearance, high above Amersham, of a concrete house in the shape of a letter Y. They called it High and Over. He has probably inspired, and that programme has, that film rather, has probably influenced my life more than any other single broadcast or, or art uh, object, I suppose. In wow. as much as, I, I, I can, I can confidently say that, um, that along with this, this training and departing thing, when I, when I realised as a small child, my God, you can make programmes about this thing, about anniversaries and so on, and this is really interesting. But what, what I was taught by Betjeman and Mertzoff by this single film was this, you can create joy and intrigue from the seemingly mundane. Yeah, and and then I, because I work at a model village <laughs> in the years after that, and I end up surrealizing that this is fun too. And I, I I started a Twitter feed, my God, about ten years ago, doing just that and going. Here's an interesting fact. It is a small fact about a thing that you don't think is that interesting, but actually it really is. Check out this, and here's a link to some more information. It's your job to be the transformer yeah. of the mundane. You can yeah. by talking about it rhythmically or interestingly or a nod or a wink leaving little hints drop that there's more a, to look crumb, at drop a crumb yeah two. this is definitely yeah. a, a, a film that by, by its very structure it's one hour long and it's musical routines there are 20 30 little scenes in it yeah. or whatever and each one if you wanted to could lead you on i looked up this is my other great thing the, the crumbs <laughs> when he goes to i'm giggling because i because every single every part of this film is just a delight when he goes to grimsdyke in oh. Harrow Weald, designed by Norman Shaw. Where the ladies are, having their lunch. His face when he wanted into the room for the Byron Luncheon Club. <laughs> many, many ladies. He's very, he's delighted. There's a sense of mounting excitement. Have I strayed into a Hitchcock film? Dirty old man. It's like Sid James wandering in there. Do you think he's, he's, when he says in years later, I wish I had more said, because he's thinking back to that moment. To, to, to Grimsdyke. And obviously all the women look like the front row of that audience in Monty Python. They've all got <laughs> little, little pepper pot hats on. But he's delighted. Ladies, good afternoon and welcome to the Byron Luncheon Club. I would like to give a very warm welcome to our speaker, Mrs Elizabeth Cooper. And he mentions in passing that this was a house that was owned by W.S. Gilbert from Gilbert and Sullivan, and that W.S. Gilbert drowned in the lake at Grimsdoke, rescuing a 17-year-old girl. Of course. So I thought, that's an interesting story. Yeah. So just before you turned up, I thought, I wonder who the girl was. So I went to Wikipedia and looked up Grimsdyke drowning, yes. found the story. The woman he saved was a woman called Ruby Vivian Priest, who was an English artist associated with the Bloomsbury Group, and she was regarded by Augustus John as one of the six best female artists of all time, well, certainly working in England at the time. And she exhibited lots and lots of paintings and was very, very well regarded. So this woman he saved from drowning, W.S. Gilbert saved from drowning, it's referred to in the Betjeman yeah. film, yes. was an incredibly successful artist. She was married to the painter Stanley Spencer. Uh, right, yes. But she didn't love Stanley Spencer. She loved a woman called Dorothy Hepworth, <gasps> who she lived with. And Stanley Spencer went, fine. Um, but it turned out that um, Ruby Priest hadn't painted a single one of these paintings that she was so famous for. Um she let her lover do it, who was the better painter. And it was a huge art fraud. Ruby Priest signed all the paintings, but her lover was very shy. Oh. And it was her expression of love for her partner. Priest even took Hepworth on the honeymoon when she married Spencer, and Spencer stayed at home and finished some paintings. So this is this incredibly eccentric, bohemian story, which I had a lovely half-hour reading up, and that all came off the crumb 
that Betjeman had left and said he rescued a 17-year-old girl. And I thought, I wonder what that story is. And the whole film is full of these things. I think you could go through this and unpack... Every single one. Everyone. You could get obsessed by that Osmond song that's playing on the transistor radio when everyone's watching their car. Down by the lazy river with the Osmonds. What are you doing tonight? <laughs> Down the lazy river or wherever it is. <laughs> if you wanted to, you could spend a day looking up the Osmonds. I, I, I got lost in a huge Willie Rushton uh, sort of cycle when I was researching Neesden a couple of years ago. Because he sings the song Neesden. And it, it, it's dreadful. This, it's, it's a dreadful record. But it's, very, it's very amusing for 1973. But it's uh, dropped in here with no context. He doesn't say, no oh, now Willie Rushton will sing the song <laughs> Neesden. Suddenly the soundtrack has got an eccentric song about Neesden on it when he goes through Neesden. Which is just perfect. Neesden, where the birds sing in the trees, done. <laughs> You can hear the blackbirds coo, so why not tight the bike alone? He mentions about this, this, uh, it's in, it goes to Croxley, the Croxley Revels. Now, yeah. my, my brother now lives in Croxley Green, and you, you see this, this procession going down the street where he now lives. The Croxley Revels, which is basically a huge midsummer, it looks like the shit wicker man. <laughs> like, like a big sort of summer fate yes. thing with a carnival queen, things like that. Yes. North of the border, down Hertfordshire Way. The Croxley Green Revels. And, and Betjeman beautifully, because he understands nostalgia. A tradition that stretches back to 1952. Which is funny now, but must have been extra funny in 1973. <laughs> exactly. That they're crowning the, the Queen of the May and things like that. And it's it's him making reference to that sort of folk revival that was going on in the, certainly in the 60s and 70s. And saying... And more, we, Morris dancing and so Yeah, well. the reason that you did country dancing at school and things like that. And oh. This is the uh, paramilitary wing of Fairport Convention. And they're, and they're deciding they're going to have basically <laughs> a fate, a fair, a summer fair. Um, and it's really recent, but he is someone who is a preservationist and a nostalgist. Well, yeah, so, but he he's got a wry smile about it because this is exactly the thing he's always into. But he's kind of laughing at it. At the well, same but time. he always did, and of course he, he, he was you know, formative of the Victorian Society. I mean, he, and he was the editor of the Architectural Review and so on. A lot of people like Ian Nairn, for yeah. example. So, you know, they're, they're all similar kind of period. This kind of this this era of preservation. So again, he is looking. Also, it's also appreciation. Yeah, it's, look, it's him and Nairn are people who. Have, if you see any of Nan's documentaries, they're magnificent as well. But they're people who look around at something ordinary, like where you yes. grew up, and say, this is worth an hour of your time, and I'm going to talk about it. But interestingly, I'm not going to make a railway documentary. Yeah. I'm not going to make an architecture documentary. Yeah. I'm not going to make a social history documentary. I'm just going to make a documentary. It will contain all those things, and I will wear those skills and knowledges very lightly. But this isn't for railway nerds. And it's not for architecture no. nerds. No. This is for everybody. Exactly. And, and it, it was, that's why it's so received, well received, I think, back in 1973. It was shown again. It was repeated two weeks later, which is very rare then. Wow. Because the schedule's pretty sort of solid. So if something's a hit and everyone's <laughs> talking about it. But yeah, it was apparently shown in 73 and then shown again two weeks later. Oh, isn't that love? I didn't know that. I, I haven't seen it on television for a long time, actually. Um, it, it, it's overdue. I remember sitting there, age of 11, and I heard for the very first time, knowingly, my surname on television. Oh. Which is when he's talking about that great Watkins folly. Um, great and, story. Uh, and and if, if, if people don't know the story, it, it's Edward Watkin, who is the chairman of the Metropolitan Railway, also was chairman of this company to build the Great Tower of London, which wasn't a Tower of London. It was basically to be the Eiffel Tower, but bigger. 
and better than Paris. And it, <laughs> <laughs> they've got one. We've got a bigger one. We're going to make this. We're going to make it a bigger tower on the marsh. Um, but he built it at Wembley, and and they started to build it. They had a competition. I think it was like two hundred guineas. The prize was or something. In eighteen ninety, the lucky winner was announced. It had Turkish baths, arcades of shops, and winter gardens. And the winning design was actually by it was uh, Stuart McLaren and Dunn. And I remember he finishes in the word Dunn. And I looked up at the screen and went, uh? <laughs> and I rewound it and went... Designed by a firm of Scots with a London office, Stuart McLaren and Dunn. And I was like, Stuart, Stuart McLaren and Dunn. I've never heard someone say my name on television before. And Timothy, I'd heard many a time. Language, Timothy! But to have done was was quite startling. Your ear pricks up naturally. Yeah. You're in this film. And I'm, it's, it's me. Oh, what? And what so, did I build? I made a tower that failed. Uh, you made the first story of a tower. <laughs> OK. Because the, the, okay. the photos right, of, of Watkins picking? Tower are brilliant. It's just a huge table. <laughs> it's just the bottom. If you can imagine the bottom of the Eiffel Tower up to the first thing. And it's like they built a huge picnic table in Wembley. It was to be 150 feet higher than the Eiffel Tower. But when at last it reached above the trees and the first stage was opened to the crowds, the crowds weren't there. They didn't want to come. Money ran out. The tower lingered on, resting and rusting, until it was dismembered in 1907. They got that far and then everyone lost interest. (laughs) So it's the, and it used to be called Watkins Folly. Watkins Folly. In fact, I think there's a pub called the Watkins Folly or Watkins Tower up there. The Watkins, now this is, here's another bit of, a bit of weird coincidence. Watkins Folly was open until two years ago. It shut down permanently two years ago. But weirdly, I built a model railway or a miniature railway with the guys at Beckenscott Model Village. And for some bizarre reason, the, the team at Watkins Folly about 10 years ago rang up Beckenscott and said, have you got any bits of model train track we could have? And Beckenscott went, yeah, maybe, possibly. So a bit of model train track that I helped construct was actually then bought and put on the wall of Watkins Folly Pub for about five, six years, weirdly. How strange. But also weirdly, I... I, I was, so Watkins Folly Pub is now closed? It's now shut down. I never went in. Me and neither. I, 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 I never got to see it myself. It used to be where the uh, British Comedy Awards used to be, was next to Watkins Folly was Pub. It so, really? I, so I used to go and see it every so often oh. when, when I went and go up there, because I don't really, I don't hang out in Wembley, but I remember saying, Watkins you know Folly! <laughs> down, the, down the industrial estate by Ikea. Yeah. Um, again, a few years later, I, I, I was probably about what, so I probably, uh, 22 at the time, 23, I had a phone call from Thorpe Park, you know, the big theme park in Surrey. You get phoned by the best people. It was a Watkins Folly, Thorpe Park. It was the best phone call as well. And it was, hi, Tim, we're getting rid of our model world exhibition. Hello. <laughs> you return that phone call quickly. And uh, she said, um, yeah, we're getting rid of it. Do, do you want some models? Because we heard you collect them, which I, I do. Model villages. Obviously, I collect model villages. That's what, that's what a model village is. It's a collection of model village parts. <laughs> But yeah. what you've done is to not look mad. You've put a little a, a pot of pens and a, and, a, and a till at the front and said it's an attraction. Maybe. It is just a collection of small buildings. Well, unfortunately, Beckham's Court haven't got my collection because they're too weird, my yeah. ones. And um, I said, do you want Model World? I said, yeah, I have Model World, the bits of it. I said, what have you got? They said, well, we've got the Eiffel Tower. I said, great. And I said, they, and we've, got, we've, got, um, we've got the Statue of Liberty and we've got Nelson's Column. We've got the Great Wall of China and we've got what the Pont du Gard and we've got the Giza Pyramid. What a oh, and also CN Tower. And I said... <laughs> 
how big are these? And she said, well, well, uh, Nelson's column is about three foot tall. She said three foot tall. And she goes, uh, that's Liberty? Oh, five foot. I said, okay, how about CN Tower? She said, no, you don't want that. She goes, that's really big. At 20 foot tall. So I don't have that. I said, um, how big is the Eiffel Tower? Oh, that's uh, about nine foot. I was like, cool, fine, right. So I rock up two weeks later with one of the guys from Beckenscott and a Luton Taylor fan thinking there's ample room in here. I walked over to this model land and I looked up and went, shitting hell and looked up and I said I said you said it was nine feet she goes did I I meant nine metres <laughs> what Not am I going to do 27 foot tall Eiffel Tower 27 foot tall Eiffel Tower made of steel amazing I, I said um I'll take Nelson's column and she goes you can have the Eiffel Tower too I went she goes I'll get a cherry picker in so that afternoon they got a cherry picker in and they demolished it with an angle grinder and I built some bits I said, I, I, what am I going to do? She goes, well, and over lunchtime, they went and they found the blueprints for me. Right. I said, I cannot take the bottom of it. So we loaded in the top two-thirds of the Eiffel Tower, which, of course, is 20 foot of it in bits. And I said, I can't take the bottom bit. And I looked at it, because, of course, this is, this is about 12 feet across at this base of steel. This is yeah. a couple of tonnes. I said, I can't. I, what am I going to do with that? And the bloke from Beckenscott, Merv, looked across and he goes, you know what you've got here? I said, what? He goes... You've got the rest of your Watkins folly. Oh, yeah. So I went, right. So I've got all the bits, the rest of Watkins folly to rebuild after the architect Dunn failed. This Dunn's going to finish it up one day. <laughs> so thanks, Betjeman. This is all your fault. And Eddie Mertzoff. Thank you, mate. <laughs> My uncle has got 20 foot of Eiffel Town in his back garden. He grows beans up it because of you. Then it goes to rural Buckinghamshire again, my childhood. And this, this is places that were my childhood. And he talks about them. And he says in, the, in, in this bit that these places might look boring. And I must remember as well, I, I'm predisposed to this kind of programme because as a kid, my dad was a chartered surveyor in right. West London. From, and he grew up in Ickenham and Rysdale. I was taught to look at buildings and appreciate what they look like and look at the detail and look at them and go, oh, that building was built in that year because it's got that type of window frame on it or that's got that bit of detail. So it was built for that. And look at that. That's a bad design because it's like that. And look at... So I was always taught to look at buildings. So what you're talking about yeah. is, is learning to read them. It learning, exactly. Yeah, how, how to read buildings. Yeah, you want yeah. to read the built environment. And Betjeman does that in this programme. He looks at things and he points out little features. As you said, it's not an architecture programme, but he points out things and you go... Oh, I can I can take that, and so you watch this program. You get you, you know what modern, or or modern as they call it now. I think he says, and he teaches you to understand what what's gothic, what's modern, and he knows this. Of course, he knows this in this film because a bit like me in my programs that I make, which incidentally. Everything that I ever did came off this programme, really. Yeah. And in series one we, of my railway architecture programme, we go up to Metro Land and we look, we look at the sun houses <laughs> because I, I thought, I know what I want to do. I want to get some betumen into this. <laughs> and, and, and the poor producer-director, Lucy, when we did this programme, and she was like, F, F, S. She's like, tone the betumen down because I start going to betumen oh. speak when I'm in Amersham. And she's like, just tone it. I'm like, it's in your I blood. Can't. I can't stop it. <laughs> I can't stop it. I'm in Amersham. I've got to be betumen. She's like, so we had to edit it so carefully so i don't come out as so being it's not a parody and it runs so deep but again he de- he defines a certain kind of program he yeah. he invents a certain kind of program with Mertzoff, yeah this style of, of it the thing that suddenly occurred to me is though this is what palin's doing yes when palin does my Bokuben's first one of those is great great railway journeys he does and he's got exactly the same thing of not saying a lot but what he does say being these perfect little pencil sketches i love these railway hotels they reflect confidence on an epic scale Nowadays, we're used to people apologising for the railways. 
But when this was built in 1903, the big railway companies spent money like water, securing the knowledge that they had transport absolutely sewn up. The result is corridors big enough for cricket matches, stairs wide enough for Busby Barclay musicals, and a lobby big enough for the Battle of Culloden. And at the end of it, when I used to watch Pain Around the World mm. and the Palin Railway ones, at the end of it go, I'm not really sure what I've been told. <laughs> it doesn't feel like you've been beaten over the head with facts or anything. They're very short voiceover chunks with a lot packed into them, but they don't seem to be. Everything's worn very lightly, and I think it's a real skill. And you must have studied that to do what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and it's funny, actually, you mentioned how this started off with a boozy lunch. So did the architecture stuff, if I'm being <laughs> honest, uh, in, in a railway station in, in London. And it all came about because this slightly boozy lunch and someone saying, this, this is a good idea. Couldn't we do it like, like this? And it, this, this is a programme about railway-type things and buildings and places that isn't for railway people. It's for everybody. Down Street opened in 1907 as a stop on the Great Northern, Piccadilly and Brompton Railway. Its distinctive glazed tile facade marks it as the work of a young architect called Leslie Green. It's called Metroland. It opens up with a sped up train journey. You go, oh, it's going to be about trains. Yeah. It's not about trains. Oh, no. He's on some trains. He's following a train line. But this is definitely about people and places and environments and stories and eccentrics, but it's not about... He never talks about the trains. But what's interesting, I think what, what, what turned me on to railway history, I suppose, as a career later on, is the fact this whole programme is based on the fact, and this realisation as a small child, you know, an 11-year-old, yeah. that everything that I did, everything that I existed around me, my family existed, everything existed because of a railway company. The Metropolitan Railway Company literally created and enabled everything around us from those years. And if I look at it now, and, and people, and it's funny how, you know, a hundred years later, the Metroland was created, because as he says at the start of the programme, child of the first war, forgotten by the second, we called you Metroland. And after that, he starts explaining. And, and when you finish that programme, you realise it is these people in the boardroom, in this one railway company, that had its headquarters at Baker Street, that have quite literally created and enabled the lives of millions of Londoners since. And and we don't really think about that and talk about this today because our lives are so busy and Metropolitan Line is, is, is perhaps, you know, not so important as it used to be in, in, in the daily life of so many people. Yeah. But this railway line and this company, these few men who are not elected in officials, you know, they, they, these are people sitting around a boardroom table like Watkin. They created the life. And if it wasn't for those people, I wouldn't exist because my grandparents met across the station platform at Ickenham. You know, <laughs> my parents, you know, went to Ricep Lido and met in a dinner dance there or something when they were teenagers and on the, on the ceiling and they yacht and little dinghies on, on the lake. You know, all of this happened because of this one railway company. And that's what I realised at this point. So much, and Betjeman tells you in this programme, and he points out that everything up to those fields in the, in, in the wet fields that wouldn't pay, up to that point... Life has been enabled and created within living memory at the time by these people in a boardroom. And that is shocking. And that's what, that's what I think about when I look back at it and go, wow, wow. So many of us don't realise this now. And so that's what I wanted to do with the architecture programme. When you kind of go, do you know what? Actually, so many of us are actually a product of systems and transport and people that we don't really think about and that we are the consequence and our lives are consequence of things that have been laid down 
And my God, then it suddenly becomes quite terrifying. <laughs> Steam took us onwards, through the ripening fields ripe for development, where the landscape yields clay for warm brick, timber for post and rail, through Amersham to Aylesbury and the Vale. In those wet fields, the railway didn't pay. The metro stops at Amersham today. Someone makes a decision, yeah. and that's where your family are. Yeah. Something is primal, where are you from? Which yeah. people always ask, so where are you from? Yeah. And the answer is, well, it was a field until someone decided this is where my family could be from. You're living with the consequence of that, as in someone's drawn in a map and said, this thing was farmland or... With a big crayon, yes. I said, this is where people are going to live. Yeah. Um, and the, exp- the lived experience there will be to do with how big they built it, how easy it was to get to, whether they connected it up to, to the railway line properly or whether whether one line or two lines go through it. Yes. Everything about your lived, your lived life, especially as a kid when you're growing up there, is affected by how close you feel to the bright lights how ambitious you feel is affected by railways it is what's good about this as a documentary is it doesn't say that implies it yeah Yeah. at the end of it you go oh you've done a a story here of lived lives that have been affected by and they are strung like bunting along this line Mm. and that's Mm. all the story is and Mm. it's just loads of little short stories loads of little sketches and what links them is this one mauve line (laughs) and it's somehow without ever saying it out loud, with the logic of a poem, because it's elusive and it's done by a poet, rather than explaining, we're going to tell you about how the railway changed your life. It just lets you finish that thought off yourself. And it's obviously what it did to you. It it was. And he he finishes on the line, actually. He says he's at Vernon Junction. He isn't, actually. (laughs) Poets are terrible liars. I I admit, Mr. Murdoch. It's a poetic license. Oh, dreadful. I mean, (laughs) um, at the end, he he stands at this field. He says, um, and out here, grass triumph. And I must say, I'm rather glad. And, and he sort of drifts off and just sort of looks out to the fields. As he says, I'm rather glad. You realise actually he's saying people's lives weren't affected out here. This is England that wasn't affected by the railway company. It, it didn't get that far. Metroland didn't have an impact out here. It failed this far right. out. And he's pleased about that. The houses of Metroland never got as far as Verney Junction. Grass triumphs. And I must say, I'm rather glad. And then that's the end of the film. It washes up to a certain distance and no further, and that's as far as it goes. Yeah, like like, like the tide going out. Yeah, it's very... It's oddly sort of poignant and plangent, that last little cadence at the end. And he's sort of saying... All the difference that this railway has made and has, has made places for these people to live and to build mm. their houses mm. and these strange, eccentric stories that I've hinted at on the way up here. And it gets this far, and then it's just grass. Yeah. And they go, this is just, now we're back into England's green and pleasant land is yes. still there. But the strange thing about that, I suppose, is that... Because he sort of said, I'm glad. And you go, well, it's a lovely view, and there's some grass... But the grass isn't as interesting as the buildings and the railway stuff. Because <laughs> it's just grass, and we've got loads of that. I always felt watching going, why are you glad? There could be more stories. There could be more weird buildings. <laughs> <laughs> at the time you've got people, I say, Ian Nairn comes after a lot of this stuff. Yeah. He, he, he's writing at the time and, and a bit after. He's very much of the this sort of wistfulness that, that Betjeman has. He celebrates the great, but looks beyond and goes up there towards the rest of England. There's just nothing. 
And and there's England and the Octopus, which is written by the chap who built Port Merion. Yeah, Clough Williams Ellis. Yeah, absolutely. And and and, and Clough he talks about how this development is sprawling oh, right. along like like ribbon development is ruining England and it, it is making everywhere look the same you know and, and, and I think uh, it's either he or Nan says you know everywhere between like it's Carlisle and North is it Carlisle and uh, Northampton looks the same these days up the A1 and he's kind of kind of right actually um, you know with all the plastic fascias and, and as you, you said you know, but look above look up look up look up always and Ian in says you know always look because a town as if you're going it on a, on a double decker bus. Yes, this is the best things. It was, Brilliant piece of advice. I remember learning that as a kid and going, "Your your town looks awful." Yeah, all towns are awful. All towns are awful because <laughs> yeah, the plastic shop fronts are all the same, but above them is the rest of the history. You'll see who was here before. The thing about Ian Nair is that he opens our eyes to the extraordinariness of the ordinary. When I first came to London, the Edgeway Road actually looked like that. The buildings were up and down Victorian, some sleazy, some posh. Now, they've all been replaced. And while the character of the Edgware Road and the people is still there, it's still the funny old mixture it always was, the buildings have become smooth, platitudinous. One of the first things that my boyfriend and I will often do if you go somewhere for a weekend or go for a holiday somewhere in, in Britain, you go and find the local museum, right? Because yeah. find the local museum, that'll show you what the town used to look like. And suddenly you can see very interesting buildings. Yeah. Or you find your, your Pevsner book, very interesting buildings, dig it out, and then look around, look up, and then suddenly your town becomes fascinating. Yeah. Because you can, if you can read a building, suddenly the whole world becomes more exciting if you can if you can read the things around you, right? It's like it's like the language. If you can understand that language, which Betjeman knew and Nair knew, if you know how to interpret that language of buildings, the world is so much more interesting, and you can unpick your past and that past of it around you. In a way, it's a bit like when you learn a new language. You go to a foreign country yeah. and you don't pick up any language. It's just a babble. So you can't <laughs> understand the words. And then as soon as you pick it up, suddenly you realise the ambient babble becomes words and things are speaking to you and you can understand what the shopkeeper's saying and things like that. And this is a bit like if you learn the language of buildings, suddenly what was a mumble, 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 rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb of buildings becomes them speaking in their voices and you can actually understand what they're saying. Oh, I am, uh, as you walk down from the station to here, when there's a bomb site. You can see because there's a gap in the Victorian buildings where a modern building's gone again. There's a bomb site. And I said, oh, that's because there was an Avro uh, aircraft yeah. factory nearby. And went, oh, so that's what they were trying to bomb. Suddenly, the boring street with quite an ugly building in the middle of it becomes a history of where the Luftwaffe was trying to take out aircraft factories. And there's your story. But what you know, that, that's a lovely analogy. I've, I've, I've never thought of it that way around. That a babble becomes intelligible. And that's, that's, a, that's a lovely, what a good idea. This is a, a guidebook for saying if you listen, then then you'll hear these stories, and, yeah. and and you can go and research them yourself. Or what it could say to someone like you is that the place you grow up in is interesting. Mm. You thought it wasn't. Everyone, especially in the suburbs, moans that it's boring. Uh, yes, and that's what that's what kids say when they're growing up. It's boring here. I want to go to the bright lights. For someone to say where you grew up is interesting and has a flavour. Yeah, and there are stories here. Yeah, there are stories to be told. And to say that the name Dunn can be on television and then also to say there's a way of talking about this that turns the dull or the unpromising into gold absolutely and for you to be affected by that at quite a young age must have that's that's the cause of your life your life has changed yeah it, it changed my life it, 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 
impossibly almost. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to compare myself to Betjeman or Mertzov. I know I don't, that, it's ridiculous to do that, but they have impacted me and, and influenced what I do. And I've said that you can do this thing. And I, I think it's very interesting to do that. And so everything I've done since has been to try and find and tell stories about the thing that's around you and make you understand what you're looking at more. Because I, I know the joy that I felt understanding buildings and i want everyone to be oh, i'm gonna cry <laughs> i think one of the things i wanted to do with 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 everything i've done since um being on telly which has been a, a real privilege has been to try and unpick the stuff that you're seeing because my dad i suppose taught me how to do that with buildings as a surveyor and said look look at this building here tim you know that's 1960s you can tell that because it's got this sort of window and it's not 70s because that over there that office building looks different and why is that dad well because of that look and 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 you could unpick this in different periods of victorian or edwardian and, and you could you could unpick those and and styles now my partner as well is an architectural historian um and so you know again obviously our pillow talk is incredibly dull <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but looking at these things, and it, it's a privilege to have that, and and because I I find it so interesting, and have Betjeman and Mertzoff saying, look at these things. There are stories here. Look around you. Look up. Look at these stories. Look look a bit deeper. Look at that building. There's a reason that's like that. And if you go along, and they've chosen a metropolitan line, which, which happens to be a, a route. You know, that's what joins the dots. You know, these jewels, these these, mm. these little things together in this necklace. You you look at them and go, oh, there are stories in everywhere. If you look a bit bit deeper, ah. You thought you knew this thing. You <laughs> thought you knew this place. But do you know what? This looks like this because that. Brilliant. And it shows people why things are like they are. Yeah. Now now I understand the place I live or the building I use every day. And, and you know, that is great. Obviously, this has all come out of, as all the best things do, out of a boozy lunch. <laughs> as in, but they've come with a boozy lunch and they've turned it into a thing that can inspire <laughs> generations of television yes, makers. Yes. The best thing is when it finished, I read this story just this afternoon. <laughs> Betjeman said, to celebrate finishing this, I'm going to take you all for lunch, take you all for dinner. Right. And they all thought, oh, this will be nice, because he was a member of Rules and wonderful, <laughs> wonderful dining clubs in London. And he said, I'll see you on Southend Pier. <laughs> and he took them to Southend Pier. And they, 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 the crew all turned up, they went, what? And took them to the most ordinary calf halfway up Southend Pier. Really unpromising. I imagine pictures of the food, awful like golden egg menu. Yeah, and they yeah. went, this is a bit weird. And he went, right, wine. And it turned out he'd found out that the people who owned this, this calf had found a cellar full of the best wine and had no idea what they had on their hands and were selling it for absolutely like bog standard, like no. a couple of quid a bottle. And they all got absolutely hammered on the finest wines from these people who ran a cafe had no idea what was in their cellar. And that's how Betjeman marked the end of it. So it was a boozy meal at either end of the, the journey. And what, what a brilliant way of capping it to say... There's, there's secrets. I've got a secret. I found a story. And the story was some people who stumbled upon a cellar of wine. There's another coincidence here, which, which I love. <laughs> so not only did one of the South End Pier trains get named Sir John Betjeman. Brilliant. Which is, is still running today, I think. That's it, the it, longest... It, it, Pier train or something, isn't there? There's a, yeah. there's a good fact. About yeah, that? It's, it's Britain's longest pier. It's also, it's also the world's longest pier train. Um, we featured it in uh, series two of Architecture the Railways Built. I'm just, I've just told you a fact that you told me on and, the television then. And, <laughs> no, and it isn't on there. It isn't in our, in our film. I didn't know that. 
I didn't know that's where he went to go and finish off Metro. So we celebrate that place in the oh, Brilliant. That is that's great. perfect. Yeah, well, he went and got hammered with the crew, which is really nice. I'll tell you what, Joel. I, frankly, I think I'm done. Uh, no, I, go, I, I think we should go and get hammered. Let's go and get some fine wine that someone has underpriced. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect way to end. Thank you very much for being Metrolander. Oh, Joel, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you for letting me be a Metrolander. <laughs> and thank you for being a Metrolander with me. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.